This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined on the line by veteran LGBTIQ community activist Rodney Croom. Rodney, welcome back to the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. Rodney, some big news in relation to the Law Reform Commission and religious schools. Give us an update about that. Yes, we just found out today that um, the Australian Law Reform Commission which uh, is meant to be doing an inquiry into protecting LGBTIQ kids in religious schools, has had uh, its report delayed indefinitely. The government has said to the Law Reform Commission it doesn't want the report until, or it won't release the report, until a year after the Religious Discrimination Bill will pass. And, of course, the Religious Discrimination Bill, which is also a big problem, uh, may not even pass. So this reform that the Prime Minister promised would be done by Christmas 2018. I don't know if people remember that. He said, by the end of 2018, we will protect those kids in schools. It's been put off into the distant future. And it is absolutely appalling that the government is putting so much focus on trying to allow discrimination in the name of religion under this religious discrimination bill. But when it comes to actually the one thing they said they do for LGBTI people has been put off indefinitely. Um, it's appalling. How are they justifying the, it, Rodney? They're not justifying it. <laughs> they're, not, they're not explaining it. They've just told the Law Reform Commission that it wants the, the issue put off. I imagine if you were to ask Christian Porter, the Federal Attorney General, he would say something to the effect of, well, we want to keep the two issues separate. But in the minds of LGBTIQ people, they're not separate. You can't, on the one hand, be threatening our rights with this religious discrimination bill. And then on the other hand, put off indefinitely the one commitment you made to actually protecting us from discrimination. I think it's clear that the federal government can't be trusted on this issue anymore, if if that wasn't already clear. And I think we need to focus on those states that currently don't protect those children. Um, There are three states at the moment, WA, New South Wales and Victoria. They don't protect LGBTIQ kids from discrimination in religious schools, nor do they protect the children of rainbow families. All the other states and territories do. So I think we need to put our energy into making sure that kids across the country, including in those three states, Victoria, New South Wales and WA, are protected. It makes you wonder if that promise that the Prime Minister made was was ever genuine, doesn't it? Well, it does make you wonder that, given that it was first of all shunted off to a Law Reform Commission inquiry and now that that report's been shunted off into the indefinite future, it really does look like the commitment was, um, dare I say, fake news. Yes, and the timing of this is very curious as well with the whole world in crisis mode in relation to the coronavirus. You know, it's hardly going to be particularly newsworthy that the government's broken a promise and it's just going to slip under the radar, isn't it? Yes, well, uh, Just Equal, which is the advocacy group, national advocacy group I'm affiliated with on LGBTI issues, we've put out a statement to the press to try and highlight this issue. Hopefully it'll be picked up in at least a few places, but you're right. With so many people's attention rightly on the threat posed by this novel virus, coronavirus, then it's unlikely that this will will make the headlines. And I guess those moderates within the coalition that normally would be concerned won't be concerned because they'll be thinking the community's got other things to worry about at the moment. Well, my hope is that they will at least raise this issue to to Christian Porter and to Scott Morrison, that they will at least raise it in their caucus and say, this is a commitment we made, we have to fulfil it. And the reason I'm hopeful about that is that in the last few days, I've been speaking to moderate liberals in the federal caucus uh, and uh, seeing, uh, I'm hearing from them increasing concern about the religious discrimination bill and the, the discrimination that it will allow in the name of religion. I have a sense that they may be less willing to accept the government slipping away from its commitments to the LGBTIQ community than they have been in the past. How is that going to play out pragmatically, though, in the party room in terms of the actual wording of this legislation? You mean the Religious Discrimination Bill? Yes. The concerns that I'm hearing are about the bill in general and whether the government should proceed at all with the bill or whether it should go back to the drawing board. So, you know, the the best situation would be if these voices within the Liberal Party cause the government to think twice about its bill. Maybe at the least what we'll see is a, is a rejigging of the bill so that it's less offensive. But to be frank, from my point of view, and I think from the point of view of an increasing number of Australians, the bill is so deeply forward that it really just needs to be scrapped. 
Absolutely, Rodney. I know you probably can't, but can you name any of these MPs who are who are who are nervous and who are who who think it's um got to be pulled? No, no. Fair enough. <laughs> no, no. It's um it's up to them to follow the processes within their their party. It's not up for me to preempt that. What I can say is that there is growing concern within both both major parties about this bill, and that's in response to concern within the community. So to any of your listeners who have been uh, signing petitions or sending emails, I'd urge them to do it again and get their friends and family to do the same because it's working. And also, of course, we've seen a large number of mainstream organisations come out against the bill, from the AMA to the Australian Industry Group to the ACTU. And most recently, we saw the primate of the Anglican Church, Archbishop Freer in Melbourne, also express his concern about this bill. When you have archbishops saying that they don't want a religious discrimination bill, you know there's a problem with it. So, Rodney, when you say to these moderate coalition MPs, look, you know, it's great you've got these concerns and that you're expressing them possibly internally, or you might, in the near future, but why haven't you spoken out publicly? What what do they say? Um, their response, as you could imagine, is that they need to go through processes within their own party and they need to express their concern there first. I mean, I don't want to give them an excuse or an out here, but even though the bill has been out for several months, it hasn't it hasn't hit Parliament and hasn't been properly discussed in either party room. So if you're inside a major party, the first issue that you have, I think, is that you want that bill to come to your party room so you can have a proper discussion about it. And uh, I guess I see my job at the moment to encourage members who are concerned about the bill to have find out as much information as they can to speak as many to as many people who will be harmed by this bill as possible and to bring on a debate within their party rooms as quickly as they can. I'm also urging them to speak out publicly, but that's probably the last thing they're going to do at the moment. So when you say there's you know MPs within the government who who have deep concerns with the flaws of this of this legislation, how many MPs are we talking about? Um, I I don't know. Uh, the, the number because I haven't spoken to all government or, or indeed all Labor MPs. All I can say is that the, there's much more concern about the bill now amongst uh, you know garden variety backbenchers than there was when the bill first came out in September. I think um, the initial the initial um, public relations spin that the government put on this bill that it's just a conventional. Discrimination Act, just like all the other existing acts, and that no one's got anything to worry about. I think a lot of people followed that, including a lot of people in the major parties. They just assumed that that was true because they were being told that by someone in authority. Um, but it's clearly not the case. It's uh, it's it's a complete misrepresentation of what this legislation does. And as more mainstream organisations like the ones I just mentioned come out and say that and say, hold on. This actually rolls back existing protections. It doesn't enhance them. The more um, the more members in both major parties are sitting up and taking notice. So it's a slow process. Uh, I would like the bill to be knocked on the head now. Actually, I would like it never to come up. But I also have to accept that um, that uh, it's an it's a it's a it's going to be a slow process of education. And I guess it's got to take. Uh, and, I, and I urge your listeners to take heart from the fact that the education is working. You mentioned the Labor Party, Rodney, uh, an increase in Labor MPs who have deep concerns. Uh, what are they saying to you? They're saying that the bill is worse than they realised. They're saying that they're hearing from, like I said before, those mainstream organisations, and they're saying that Labor's meek and mousy response so far isn't good enough, uh, and that the Labor Party needs to take a stronger stand uh, in defence of the vulnerable people who will be uh, harmed by this bill, uh, and in defence of, of of Australia's existing discrimination laws, which are for the most part a Labor legacy, and that you know they're the, they're one of Labor's uh, greatest legacies in terms of law reform in Australia over the last forty years. So they're upset with the bill, and they're upset with uh, Labor's relative silence on it. So. Um, my hope is that they will take that concern to their party room or take it to their leader in particular, Anthony Albanese, and say, it's time for us to say this bill sucks and we have to vote it down. And, of course, he knows that last time you spoke, you went to a roundtable with him where various groups such as unions, business organisations, religious organisations, all told him that. So he's, he's made it very clear to you and others that he gets the message. Uh, you must be disappointed that in the coming weeks he hasn't actually spoken out like one would have hoped. Yeah, I am disappointed. Disappointed by 
his meekness on the issue. I'm disappointed that other uh, Labor members aren't speaking out more strongly, uh, particularly Labor members in my home state in Tasmania, where there is uh, a proposed override of our Anti-Discrimination Act under the federal law. Um, I'm disappointed that they've all been silent about that. And uh, I can only hope that there's more backbenchers speak out within the existing party mechanisms, then um, the leadership will hear that and it will realise that um, discontent about this bill isn't isolated to community groups or professional bodies. It's actually percolating up within their own parties. In contrast, of course, Rodney, on the other side of the world, the Canadian government has introduced legislation to ban conversion therapy or conversion practices. Uh, how does their legislation define conversion therapy? Yes, so the Canadian government has announced uh, plans to criminalise conversion practices, which is a really important uh, step forward, not just in Canada, but I think across across the world. In, in, in a lot of places where there's already been a ban put in place, uh, legislators have balked at strong criminal sanctions. Instead, they've gone for the deregistration of health practitioners who get involved in this kind of stuff, or they've looked at civil penalties. And uh, in Canada, I think they're taking a stronger and I, can, I would consider a more appropriate response, which is to criminalise it. Because what we're talking about is child abuse. And we're talking about telling young people that, that because they are uh, trans or gender diverse or same-sex attracted, that they're fixed, that they need to be broken, and that there's a way to do that. Sorry, that they're, that they're broken and there's a way to fix that. And those young people are being sucked into these programs that, that just make the situation so much worse. That's a form of abuse. It's, it's very cruel. It has no place in contemporary society. And uh, so, yeah, I, I applaud the Trudeau administration for saying it will criminalise criminalise this practice. And I hope that legislators in Australia follow the same course. What I'm not so sure about when it comes to the Canadian uh, proposal is how far that extends. Now, I know that uh, they're proposing to criminalise the public promotion of conversion practices, which is great. But of course, um, the whole ideology that lies behind those practices also needs to be dealt with. Uh, not necessarily through criminalisation, but certainly through community education funded by the government, uh, and particularly within faith communities. People need to be able to identify when this ideology is at work and to have effective ways to counter it. And when I talk about ideology, is what I'm talking about is what I said before, telling LGBTIQ people that we're somehow broken and that we can be fixed uh, in, in, in whatever way, through counselling or therapy or Bible reading. We need effective ways to counter that ideology as well as the practices. Yes, the Canadian legislation has uh, financial and prison penalties for profiteering or for advertising conversion practices. What's your understanding, Rodney, of how the legislation does deal with prayer groups and praying the gay away approaches? I understand uh, that there's a provision which exempts private uh, communications. So I assume that that's aimed at people within families talking about this. Uh, what the definition of a private conversation is, I'm not sure. I'll have to follow that up. And I suggest, I'd certainly suggest in the future that, that uh, in looking at the details of this, uh, it's good to get the voices of, of people who are uh, survivors of conversion practices because they know exactly what the mo where the most damage lies. But in the Canadian legislation, there is an exemption for private communications, uh, more public communications like a pastor to the congregation or whatever that would be covered by the legislation. Ecuador, Brazil and Malta have already introduced national conversion practices bans and various you know, state and province legislatures have as well around the world. Are we seeing the beginning of an international legislative trend to ban conversion practices like we did with marriage equality laws being introduced? Yes, I think so. Yes. Um, Canada uh, is the first large nation to do it at a national level. Of course, in Canada, there's a different arrangement to Australia. Uh, if we're talking about amending the criminal law in Australia, that needs to be done state by state, not across the nation. Um, but uh, with Canada taking a lead here, as well as those other nations you mentioned, like Malta, uh, I, I can see the issue going to a new level right across, at least across the Western world, particularly in um, Western Europe, uh, and, and in Latin America, you already mentioned Ecuador. And it is a bit like marriage equality. Uh, Canada obviously took an important lead on that issue uh, in 2005, and that really began 
uh, even though there had been marriage equality in the Netherlands and a couple of other countries like Belgium, Canada taking the lead really did galvanise the English-speaking world, at least, and, and send positive messages out across Western Europe and Latin America and other places. And I remember many Australians going to marry in Canada because that was seen as uh, such a landmark decision to allow marriage equality there. And I imagine, as with marriage equality, there will be a movement that grows up to oppose banning conversion practices. When the issue was first mooted a few years ago in Australia, the groups like the Australian Christian Lobby agreed that uh, it was wrong to try and convert people. Now, though, we see groups like that uh, more opposed to conversion practices, and the argument they use is that somehow is a, is a, is a, has a chilling effect on free speech or, or, or freedom of religion. So they're arguing that people should be able to uh, talk about the sexual orientation and gender identity in in in, in negative terms as part of uh, as part of their freedom of religion. So that debate, I think, is one that we will have increasingly in Australia, and we need to grapple with that. I don't see it as a breach of freedom of speech or freedom of religion because uh, conversion practices are so deeply damaging and so harmful to the people who undertake them that um, it's a legitimate boundary if you like, it draws a legitimate boundary around those basic freedoms that the ACL and other groups on the religious right think should be uh, unfettered. So Rodney, it sounds like you're firmly of the view that banning conversion practices is the purview of state and territory governments and that there's no need for national laws in relation to this? Oh no, I'm not saying there isn't any need. If it uh, is possible for the Australian states to refer their powers in this area, for there to be a national ban, that would be great. But uh, as with so many areas of law reform in Australia, over the last 20 or 30 years, um, we've seen it be a matter of, of reform passing at a state-by-state level um, before there is a national ban. That's just the way it seems to go. That was the case with rec- the recognition of same-sex relationships in Australia, recognition of same-sex parenting, and a, and a range of other reforms. It happened state-by-state. As more and more states enacted the reform, the reforms became better, uh, stronger, and then finally there was reform at the national level. Uh, I suspect that that is the way it will go in this case as well. And given the discussion we've already had, James, uh, particularly about LGBTI kids in schools, do we really want the federal government? To well, be yes, I was going to say that. Can they be trusted? This, dealing with this issue right now, um, I think not. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to give them a cop out. There should be a national ban, but at the same time, leadership on the states is much more likely and probably uh, would be lead to stronger legislation. Rodney, on another matter, in your home state of Tasmania, there was a robo-call poll about gender that has offended a lot of people. Can you tell us about that? Yes, there was a, uh, there's been robo-polling in Tasmania in relation, in relation to transgender uh, young people. Interestingly, the calls haven't come from Tasmania. They've come from Sydney. But quite a lot of people report receiving a call, um, which is very negatively framed. It talks about Australian schools teaching children that they can t- change their gender, quote, based on how they feel, which is a very negative and trivialising view of, of gender identity. And then goes on to ask respondents whether they think parents should be able to withdraw their children uh, from classes where it's taught that, you know, you can, quote, change your gender based on how you feel, yes or no, and whether people will be more or less likely to vote for a political party that supports giving parents the right to withdraw their children if gender is being discussed. That's interesting, Rodney, um, isn't it, that it, it mentions political parties. Was this commissioned by a political party or a lobby group close to a particular political party? I don't know. And, um, and they didn't the say? Inquiries, is that the no, case? They didn't, right. No, they didn't, say, they didn't say who they were. And uh, all we know is that, the, like I said, the calls came from Sydney. Uh, you would assume that it might be a party or a lobby group. But the concern that we, we had, obviously, is that it's so negatively framed. It's framed in black and white uh, without any sense of, you know, having parents and teachers and principals involved in a discussion about what's the most appropriate thing to do. A very negative framing of, of gender identity. Like I said, it trivialises gender identity. And then it politicises it by talking about by taking the issue up to the level of vote voting for political parties. And it was important for us to expose this because um, we need the community to know that if the results of this particular poll are released publicly, that it's not a legitimate poll. It's obviously push polling uh, and it's uh, quite 
politi- and it politicises the lives of you know young Australians who are quite vulnerable to hate and stigma. And the last thing they need is this kind of negative push polling about their lives. It's very interesting they selected Tasmania if the calls were coming out of Sydney. Maybe it's just where the company that did the polling for these people is based. But it's all very curious, isn't it? Well, last year, gender issues were in the news in Tasmania a lot because we um, passed new reforms recognising protecting trans and gender diverse people from uh, allowing them you know, uh, the same rights as other people and it was very progressive reform. Uh, so quite possibly groups that were opposed to that reform are, are now polling to see, to try and create a sense that there is a negative backlash to that. That's certainly not the case in Tasmania. The, the response to the legislation has been almost entirely positive, except from the state government that opposed it. And even members of the state government now seem to agree that it really wasn't as much of a worry as they originally said. So perhaps it's part of a campaign to discredit our gender law reforms. Uh, it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit hard to say. The point, I guess, is when this legislation... Sorry, when this polling does come out, it's important that people realise that it wasn't a fair survey, that it's not unbiased, that it's very biased um, and very harmful to, uh, LGBTI, uh, to, to, to trans and gender diverse young people. Rodney Croom, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Always wonderful to chat with you on 3CR. Thanks, James. Rodney Croom, there you are and in your face on 3CR. And here is PJ Harvey. How could that happen? How could that happen again? Where the fuck was I looking when all his horses come in? And he built an army of kamikaze. Willing pilots flying into space space and beyond, build an army to come and find me. J. Harvey, Kamikaze, you are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Well, Alice's Garage is a social enterprise empowering older LGBTIQ folks. This week, it released a new resource called Kinfolk for older trans and gender diverse people. On the line, we have Dr. Catherine Barrett from Alice's Garage. Catherine, welcome back to the show. Always great to chat. Uh, happy Friday, James. Happy Friday, indeed, on a very, very weird week for the whole planet, really. Catherine, it's a great resource, Kinfolk. Let's start with its uh, addressing the suppression of gender identity and choice by family members and service providers towards older gender-diverse folks. How does the resource address that? We know from the research that there are increasing numbers of older people who are transitioning or living out their gender diversity as middle mature age or older age people. Uh, And what happens is that often, you know, people have had to suppress their gender diversity because it wasn't safe. 
uh, and and now you know making those changes and living out their gender diversity and you know in, in they may be in their heterosexual relationship they may have children and grandchildren and and what's happening um, people were telling us is that those relationships were being fractured that that there were often fixed gender roles and expectations really well established over decades and then a change to the way gender is expressed is was a um, a disruption or a really significant change in those relationships and people were saying. Um, there was lots of research where uh, older trans and gender diverse people were saying that they weren't allowed, for example, to uh, present as female uh, in front of the grandchildren or at a family wedding or in a particular context. And what I wanted to, to do was to to give family members, older trans and gender diverse people and family relationship services some resources to help people try to mediate through those difficulties. So that's where the kinfolk resources were developed. And the other, the aspect of that too, was really in aged care services, where those dynamics, some of the challenges with families play out. And there's a body of evidence on that. But also too, that, that you may have service providers and other residents in aged care services who are transphobic. So the resources were really around recognising the rights of older trans and gender diverse people to dignity and choice. Tell us about the composition of the of the resources. I know it's online, for example. Yeah, well, it's 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 a really lovely suite. We're really proud. I mean, we've worked incredibly hard, but we're really proud of the resources that we've developed. So there's there's a resource called Our Authentic Self, which is for aged care service providers, and that's a series of principles around dignity and choice. And there's an online um, learning module with that in the film. Uh, but, but the other things that are really quite unique, uh, one of them is called a gender genogram, and that's a resource where uh, genograms are used often in family therapy or in health practice, uh, and it's like a family tree, but you map out roles. Well, um, uh, in, in genograms, there are only two symbols, one for males, one for females, and what we wanted to do was not only add in the symbol for trans and gender diverse people, but also add in a gender focus. So the whole thing is mapping out gender roles and expectations in families by really mapping out gender. And that's a way of, in the context of family therapy, having conversations about gender and how gender works in families and then what happens when somebody changes the way they express their gender. So that's the gender genogram. Uh, and we've, we've, we did some work with family therapy services and um, with the fabulous Ruth McNair, who's a GP, and, and we were getting feedback that this is a tool that would be really, really useful um, when we're doing work with families and older trans and gender diverse people. So that that's the gender genogram. But the other one was called a ripplegram. And it came from older trans and gender diverse people who said, I felt like transitioning was it like transitioning felt like a pebble thrown into a pond and there were a series of ripple effects. And so a ripplegram is a way of documenting the effects of changing the way you express your gender identity as an older person because there are a series of positive impacts so that and particularly for the older 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 gender diverse person who may feel um, a sense of mental well-being or affirmed and confidence that that this is who they have wanted to be perhaps for or how they wanted to express their gender for a long time um, but then the adjustments to families, that can be a ripple effect. And people said things to like, you know, the fact that I transitioned from male to female has meant that now my wife, people expect that my wife is now a lesbian because she's in a same-sex relationship and she's copying flack because she's perceived to be a lesbian and she's not. And, you know, all those consequences for an older person need to be thought out. So we've documented some of those and and the process for doing them. And, and what we're encouraging is, you know, if there are older people who are, are looking to change the way they express their gender identity, that they could, you know, sit down and look at those effects and then plan for them and then mitigate some of the effects that, that might be difficult. The phrase, love makes us family, is very much part of the kinfolk resource. Tell us about the development process that occurred for that phrase. Well, it was really because, you know, fabulous rainbow families have that um, wonderful expression, love, uh, love makes a family. That's, what, that's the expression, isn't it? Love makes a family. And what we were noticing is that it, 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 there was something else other than love that was happening. And, and the beautiful poster that you're talking about uh, has... Sally Conning, who is one of the project team members, who's a trans elder, 
Um, and Sal has a beautiful sister, Monika, and, you know, they have a wonderful relationship. And um, we've got this gorgeous photograph of the two of them on the poster, and it says... Uh, uh, love makes us family, respect makes us strong. And so we're calling not just for love, but also to that respect of a person's gender. And that's, that's the sort of face of the, of that campaign. And so, you know, we're printing a couple of thousand of those posters and we want to put them up around the place because it's really important for, for people to think. I mean, you, you see that image and you see two gorgeous women who really look like they're enjoying each other's company. And also to that really important message that these are two older women and really inviting people to think about gender diversity and older people. And, you know, we're very grateful to the gorgeous Grant Maynard for that beautiful post that we hope just gets spread far and wide. Absolutely, and we're very fortunate to be able to talk to Sally in just a few minutes. But tell us about some of the other people who were involved in the project team for this fabulous Kinfolk resource. Uh, so Kay Bradshaw, uh, who has you know has a, an amazing brain and a fabulous heart. Kay's a, an incredible strategic thinker and has amazing people skills. So uh, Kay worked on the project with us, and then there were three uh, trans and gender diverse elders. So Sally Conning, Tony Painter, and Kathy Mansfield, uh, and that was a really important part of the project's success. So you know this idea with. Uh, Alice's Garage and Celebrate Aging is that we're trying to think beyond co-design and co-production. We're really trying to see wherever we can to look at co-leadership. So having the three, particularly having the three older trans and gender diverse people on the project team, they helped us develop the survey. They came up with the concept of the ripplegrams. You know, they're featured in the posters and all over the resources. You know, they've really made a significant contribution to the work, but they've helped us to make sure that it's effective, that it's meaningful, and that's incredibly important. So, you know, anyone who watches the... There's a nine-minute film up on the webpage and, and you'll see at the end of that film the older trans and gender diverse team members reflecting on, you know, I feel more confident now having been through this project. I feel more sure that if people take up these resources that, that we will be respected. So that's a really positive outcome. And I think one of the things for us as well too, you know, we got a small grant from the Department of Health um, the Commonwealth Department of Health, and that feels incredibly important as well too because, you know, anyone who's in LGBTIQ communities is, uh, you know, we, we need that support from the federal government and we don't always feel that it's there. So for us, having um, these resources funded by the Department of Health is incredibly important because it's, it's, it's well, it's the Department of Health saying, you know, we agree that this is important and we want to support... Um, this incredibly important work. So if there are any family therapy services out there, you know, there's a Relationships Australia organisation in every state and territory and there are other family relationship and conflict organisations, we'd love you to get on the website and have a look at the resources and take them up as part of your practice for GPs as well. And, you know, if there are, you know, middle mature age and older trans and gender diverse people, you know, we'd love you to get on and have a look at the Ripple Grants and Gender Genograms and help spread the word because, you know, we're being reliably informed that these will be resources that will really help people. Absolutely. Catherine, when we spoke in October last year, you highlighted that our LGBTIQ seniors' elders had not been included in the National Elder Abuse Strategy. Has there been any progress on changing that since we spoke? No. No, there hasn't. There hasn't. And if that sounds despondent, yeah, you know, there's some things we've got traction on and there's some things we haven't. And, you know, it, it is a real concern because if you look at um, where this project comes from. This project comes from uh, a place of what I would call elder abuse, older trans and gender diverse people aren't, and that's okay. Um, but it's really, you know, in family relationships, people having their gender expression restricted, you know, uh, and these issues have to be taken up by government-funded elder abuse organisations and if old LGBTI people aren't included in the national strategy even though they are a special needs group if they're not included in that strategy for elder abuse prevention then it's not going to cue elder abuse services to really um, take these issues up so that's it's still a real gap for us and you know we're still fighting on many fronts really.
Absolutely, such as the census. She must have also been disappointed that there are no questions about LGBTIQ elders in the upcoming 2021 census, which the community lobbied so hard for. Yes, look, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, a number of people that I've been speaking to have been talking about invisibilisation. Is, I don't know if that is a word, but, you know, the, the act of being made invisible. And if there isn't data... Uh, and our needs aren't being documented, then, then you know, there's not... I mean, the research data, that data from the census or this, the data from these projects are so incredibly important because the data informs policy, uh, informs funding priorities, informs actions, cues services on, you know, government priorities. Um, and so it is incredibly... It is incredibly disappointing and feels quite oppressive. Actually, um, and I want to. I want to. Res- I, I then want to respond to that with a, you know, a kind of Friday afternoon hopefulness. And you know, we've worked really hard on this project with a small amount of money. We worked really hard on this project to produce a lot of outputs and outcomes because we know there are still so many inequalities. And we want to see those being addressed. And there are so many wonderful LGBTIQ people out there who are trying to make a difference. Uh, And I take my hat off to all of you who are out there as well too because, you know, there's a lot of people doing things because they're passionate about addressing inequalities and I take my hat off to you. We need you, I thank you. And, of course, one of those people is Sally Connings, who was instrumental in the Kinfolk Project, uh, produced by Alice's Garage. Of course, people can go to Alice's Garage online to look at the resources. But, Catherine, we're going to be speaking to Sally in just a moment, but I want to thank you for your great work, and I want to thank you so much for talking to us down 3CR. Thanks, Jane. Cheers. The wonderful Catherine Barrett there. We will be talking to Sally Conning uh, with a personal perspective about the Kinfolk Project in just a moment right after this announcement. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. One of the people who was instrumental in the development of the Kinfolk resource for gender diverse elders in the community is uh, Sally Collings. And Sally joins us on the line. Sally, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Sally, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, how do I put 68 years into 10 seconds? It's very hard, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, acknowledged LGBTI elder out there doing what I can for community, I guess, is the simplest way of saying about me. Fantastic. Now, the Kinfolk resource is a wonderful resource. It's got some incredible things in it, such as the genograms and the ripplegrams and our Authentic Selves resource. Tell us the backstory to how you ended up on the steering committee for this great project. I've done a lot of work with the good doctor, as I call Catherine Barrett, over the years, and uh, we started talking about we need to do more, we need to do more, and it got to the point where I knew of the, the old fallacy of transgender people reverting when they get dementia and we knew that was a fib and we knew we needed to break that myth and it just evolved from that into we need to be getting service providers and relationship service providers into talking with us. Absolutely and you must just feel like there's just so much that needs to be done because we are living in a, in a, in a revolutionary time at the moment aren't we when it comes to gender identity and there's so much work to be done. There's heaps more. This project, as proud as we are of it, is just the start, I think, of what needs to happen. We've hit the, you know, we're the top of the iceberg. There's still so much underneath it which has to come to the surface as yet. 
Absolutely. So what's your favourite part of, of this incredible resource, Kinfolk? Well, I'd have to... <laughs> Catherine's here with me and we're laughing at each other. I'd have to say my favourite part, that beautiful coloured photo of me and my sister, Monika. Yeah, Catherine was talking about that before. It sounds like you have an incredibly close relationship. Well, I'm one of the lucky ones. I've got a really strong relationship with my sister. It goes to the point where on my, oh, I'm 68 now, so it's on my 65th birthday, my birthday card said, happy birthday, Sal, glad I've got a sister. So, you know, I'm rocking it. Fantastic. And, of course, uh, you must hear some terrible anecdotes from people about discrimination from their families and also service providers. Yeah, well, there's too much of it. There's gender erasure and all those sorts of things happening all the time. And part of the Kinfolk Project idea was we can uh, hopefully help service providers mediate and advocate for the trans and gender diverse older people as they go into the nursing home situation or even needing care in home that the providers will be able to advocate for them. Absolutely. Do you think we need specialist nursing homes for, for the gender diverse community? Oh, there's a lot of yeses and noes. Some people say yes, some people say no. My personal preference is I'd rather just go into mainstream because I consider myself where I am. I'm part of mainstream society. Absolutely. But I know a lot of a lot of trans and gender diverse folk and LGBTI people in general would prefer to be in an LGBTI facility. That's their choice, my choice. And I think we, as people, first off, we all have that choice. So it sounds like aged care is a particular uh, sensitive area for the community where there is a lot of discrimination. Uh, it just sounds like there's so much more that needs to be done. What are some of the areas in aged care that are particularly concerning to you? Well, the words I brought up before, gender erasure, because they're just treating transgender older people as though they are in their original gender and they're not accepting them as their the, the identity that they wish to be known or seen as. Absolutely. So what project is next? I mean, Kinfolk's a great resource. There's so much more that needs to be done. Uh, where are you going to focus your energies next? We're starting a new project now. It's art-based, it's word-based, about pride of self, all that sort of stuff. I've been doing a workshopping over lunch today for about three hours on the table out in the other room is full of notes and scribble bits and some beetroot stains because we, <laughs> we love beetroot and stuff like that. We're always looking at doing different stuff and as we evolve the projects and the ideas evolve, we, we pull more people in to help us and we go, hey, here, this is what you've got to look at next, people. We've gone through standard one of aged care. We've now got standards two through to eight, we're trying to work a name out, something around the Opti for eight and everything like that. The scribble notes sound fascinating. Can you tell us some of the things written on them? Tell you some of the things written on the scribble notes. Oh, well, yeah, correct. that's where all the genius obviously is being expressed. Well, the, the first big one we've got here is in capital letters across a four by three inch piece of paper is ROAR. Get the quiet kid to ROAR. Have confidence. Uh... Just picking one up randomly, I've got no idea what it says. All things are grand on a scale of one, two. You know, they're just, as we're, and there's little things here, oh, so many bits and pieces. Strength with a heart under it. Grew, grew wings, as in, you know, as we become ourselves, the wings grow and we can fly higher. Protect the young, protect people as they come through. Uh, I got tough skin, horn scale and no frills. That's definitely me. <laughs> and the big one that Catherine's just put in front of me, confidence, self-talk, toe in the water, be yourself, three deep breaths, forget to be scared. I won't repeat the next word on air because I can't. And don't care what you think, be yourself. It all sounds incredibly empowering. You must feel empowered working on these projects and just doing this, this brainstorming work that you just outlined. I think empowerment's a huge word and we all need to empower each other and ourselves all the time. Absolutely. 
Sally, uh, tell us a little bit more about Kinfolk. Uh, what would you draw people's attention to in particular when they go to Alice's Garage and check it all out online? I think the Junagrams and Ripplegrams are really cool items and tools for people. The, a transgender diverse person can use the tools themselves. They can um, involve family with it if they can, if family are talking to them. If they need to, they can get service providers to help them with them using them, or they can say, "Hey, the service providers, relationships, services, use these. They will help you work out what's going on around us." And of course, I can't go past the video because I because I because I act act the fool in a little bit of it, having fun, which is what we need to do. We all got to have fun. Well, absolutely, fun doesn't stop with youth, does it? No. Well, better not. <laughs> Sally, awesome chatting with you. Congratulations on Kinfolk. People can go to the Alice's Garage site to check it out. And thank you to you and Catherine for chatting to us on 3CR. Really appreciate it. And once again, our congratulations on the resource. Thanking you very much and a pleasure to talk. Ditto. Cheers. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and this is Elvis Presley. <laughs> Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care, and I'm just a devil with love to spare. So viva Las Vegas, viva Las Vegas. How I wish that there were more than the 24 hours in the day Even if there were 40 more, I wouldn't sleep a minute away Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel A fortune won and lost on every deal All you need is strong heart and a nerve steel Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Las Vegas with your neon flashing And your one-arm bandits crashing All those holes down the drain Fever, Las Vegas turning day into nighttime Turning night into daytime If you see it once You'll never be the same again I'm gonna keep on the run I'm gonna have me some fun It cost me my very last dime if I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time. I'm going to give it everything I've got. Lady, look, please let the dice stay hot. Let me shoot a seven with every shot. Beaver! The voice, Elvis Presley, Viva Las Vegas. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next for the Friday Rave. Taking us out is Rihanna with Woo, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
like to thank Thornhaber Health for their financial support of this program. Thornhaber Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornhaber Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.